we are glad you're here. We've been working through the book of 1 Peter. And one of my encouragements to people who come has been to find 15 minutes and just read the whole book straight through. Sometimes we miss the whole picture of something because we just read a verse or passage. You can read 1 Peter within about 15 minutes. So, did anybody get a chance to read 1 Peter? And something jumped out that you learned from reading 1 Peter. Anybody? One insight you'd be willing to share with the group as we start off. Yes, in the back, please. Mm. Um, we'll come back to questions at the end, but you're absolutely right. Salvation runs through First Peter. What we have to do, as we talked about, I think, the first night, is salvation can mean different things. It can mean salvation in the sense of justification. It can mean sanctification, and it can mean glorification. And Peter doesn't just use it in one sense, so we've always got to look at the context and how he refers to it, but that runs through this book, typically glorification. Good. Anybody else have an insight from reading 1 Peter, or we're going to jump in and get started? Yeah, go ahead. You know what? That's a pretty good summary of the book of 1 Peter. He, he, so if you didn't hear, he said, basically Peter's saying, we're Christians now, so act like it. That's about as good of a summary as you could give for 1 Peter in modern parlance. A lot of what Peter's saying is this is true about you. You have an inheritance, so live differently. Well said. Let's, uh, let's sum up kind of the book as a whole, and then we'll jump into chapter 3. So you remember... Peter is written probably in the 60s, a few years before Peter dies as a martyr, to a number of churches in, in modern-day Turkey. And they're undergoing some hostility to their faith. And essentially, the heart of this book is that they would suffer well. It is God's will that they respond well to suffering, is what he's saying. Now, why? the prime motivation of this book that they should be holy is what? Because God is holy. The heart of our ethical motivation is the character of God. But then right after he says that in chapter 1, what's the second reason he says to be holy? He's got not only a father, he's also a judge. So he's putting a little bit of fear in, do well because God is God and he's holy, but also will be judged. Third reason is, to test our faith, our faith, burn away the dross, to have a genuine faith. And the fourth reason, the final reason, is that we would live holy lives for what? To a testimony to a non-believing world that they would see our good conduct and glorify the Lord. That's what this book is about. As it shifts into chapter 2 that we talked about last week, or yesterday, he start, time just flies differently at Hume, doesn't it? which I love on so many levels, is he starts giving specifics of what this looks like in terms of submission. We submit to governing authorities, masters, uh, servants are to submit to masters. And in this passage, he shifts into wives and husbands. So we're going to skip this section and go to chapter four. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Boo, you want the controversy. You're clearly not a married man. Um, I'm just kidding. I don't even know who booed. <laughs> All right. So we're on, we're in first Peter chapter three and we'll read a section or just kind of break it down. And then I'll stop a few times as we work through this, see if you have questions. And then if we have, are able to get through chapter three, we'll take some more questions at the end. All right. So here we go. Start at chapter three. He says, likewise. Now, what does that tell us by the way? Exactly. He's saying, likewise. So if you want to understand this passage, again, what was just talked about before. So he's continuing the same line of thinking. You know a line of thinking ends when a writer says, amen. Then you know it's done. New line of thinking. In this case, he says, likewise. So in the case was submission to governing authorities. Masters, again, your servants are to submit to you. Likewise, he says, in a similar vein. Wives, be subject to your own Husbands. Now, a couple things to keep in mind. It doesn't say 
women be subject to men. It says, be subject to your own husbands. All right? So this is within the context of marriage. And subject basically means to put yourself under the authority to submit to. So it's in the same line of the authority that we've seen before. Okay? It says, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, some things when I read commentaries, it's like straightforward. As I start to read commentaries on this, people are split, commentators are split, over exactly who the audience is here. So, is this speaking to women who are married to unbelieving husbands? Or is it a comment to all husbands and wives? Does that make sense? That's a part of the discussion, a part of the debate here. So keep that in the back of your mind as we go further, and you might have an opinion about which one it's pointing towards. All right? Or possibly both. It might be. It very well could be. So it says, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, which would be the hint that we're not either talking about unbelievers or believers who are not being faithful and living according to what God has called them to, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So the question is, what does one mean? If you think Peter is speaking about wives who are married to unbelieving husbands, then the win would be what? Would be salvation, would be winning them to Christ. If you think it's referring to believing husbands who are not living that way, then one would be what? Would be obedience, one back to the faith. So it might be both. It might be both. But that's important to keep in mind. So in a sense, he's using winning language, and how are they to do it without a word by the conduct of their wives? So right away, Peter's saying the most important way to be a witness, to be a testimony, in fact, in light of this book, it really is an act of grace. Do you remember the language that is used throughout 1 Peter? That when you suffer, it's an act of grace towards the one who is persecuting you, that God could use us to show grace. So when it's saying, one, by your conduct, you are like imitating what Christ did to an authority that mistreated him, in a sense, winning them over by showing grace to them in the same manner that Christ did. So it's the conduct, not the words. That's what he's arguing. He says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct... So in other words, to win them over by showing respect and by conducting yourself in a certain fashion. Okay? Now it keeps going on. Verse 3 gets really interesting. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Now, here's where I think this gets super interesting. Is Peter making a blanket statement that women ought not have braids in their hair? Because I'm looking out and maybe seeing one or two. So either you haven't read this or you have a different interpretation. Right? This is kind of an important question. This is one of the biggest challenges in interpretation. How much is cultural? How much is transcultural? So do we really think Peter is saying women never wear gold? Yesterday, I made that comment to my wife, and she goes, that's why I'm wearing silver. But I notice you've got the gold pendant on we bought, just obviously kidding aside. Is he making uh, transcultural statements about women never braiding their hair, or is it something about the context because of the hostility and suffering they're going under, and this is the best way, given their circumstances, to win over their husbands? Do you see what the question is and the heart of it? So just keep that in your mind and we'll, we'll land this one a little bit, at least how I see it, and then we'll get your feedback. So he says, do not let your adorning be external, the brain of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Now, what did he just mention here that this is the third time it's been mentioned in this book? Gold. 
Notice Peter has mentioned gold three times in this book. How does he mention it? It's perishing. So gold is something, as human beings, we tend to hold up with value and we sacrifice for gold. What has Peter been doing throughout this letter? He's saying gold is perishable. Gold will fade. Gold is temporary. But the kingdom of God is unfading and unperishable, imperishable, and eternal. So gold is actually used to represent temporal fading things. So with that in mind, why does he mention gold again? Peter could have mentioned pearls. He could have mentioned oh, silver. He could have mentioned a bunch of different kind of jewels we see throughout the scriptures. But he specifically mentions gold. My thoughts are, is because he's making a broader point to the women, saying we're trying to draw our husbands, so to speak, to things that are eternal to things that are undefiled. So don't make the key part of your character, things that are not eternal, not are of this world, focus on the things that are eternal. I think he's making that contrast when we compare it with the rest of the letter, rather than saying women never wear braids. Let's keep reading, and then we'll stop and see what you think, okay? So again, verse three. Do not let your adorning be external, the brain of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, verse four, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the what? Imperishable. Do you see what he's doing? He's contrasting the perishing, which is gold, and external with the internal that's imperishable. So if this whole letter is about getting them to shift their thinking from the temporary and the perishable to the eternal and imperishable, you see how it would make sense in the clothes that they wear to not now turn and find your identity in things that are temporal. Rather, he's saying, let's even live out this conduct before our husbands and show that what matters most is character and things that are eternal. That's why I tend to think when we look in the whole book of 1 Peter, that he's not making a transcultural statement that women should never wear gold. He's not making a transcultural statement that you should never braid your hair. You're safe, young lady. I think this is why the context is so important. And the context of rest first Peter, as we've looked at it, I think really brings this out. Uh, let's finish this one, then we'll stop and see what, what thoughts you have. It says, so instead of the external, which is gold and your adorning and clothes, uh, he says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So you see what he's contrasting? Our world would say, what is more precious, gold or a gentle spirit. If you gave people an option, door one, gold, door two, gentle spirit, what's everybody going to pick? I'll take door one. I can figure out the gentle spirit thing. It's not that important anyways, right? Because I use Twitter. That's what everybody would pick. Peter's doing a contrast, saying the reason I'm telling you not to adorn yourself with gold is because there's something more precious, and that's your character, and it's your conduct, and how you carry yourself will mean more in terms of showing the eternal state of heaven and God's character than the gold that we may wear. So he's making a contrast here. He says, which in God's sight is very precious. So our world holds up gold, but it's saying, no, God holds up character and a gentle spirit as far more precious. Then verse five, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So basically, what's he saying to the women? He's saying, submit to your husbands. Obviously, these are husbands that need to be won over in some fashion. So as we've seen without, throughout this book, Obey rulers even if they're unjust because God is the only one who's impartial and who's just. He says, wives, in this, context, in this 
in this context that you're in, we want to win over your husbands. How are you going to do this? Not primarily with words, not primarily with your dress, but with your character, with your gentle spirit, with your conduct, which of course is the way that Christ lived his life as well. And he gives an example of Sarah in the Old Testament. Let me stop right there. Thoughts, questions. And in some ways, I'm not eager to jump into the role of women in the church debate, trying to stick to first Peter, but I understand this raises further questions. Go ahead. That's not the focus of where it should be. I, I, think that's a great, I think that's a great way to put it. So if you think about this book, what's he doing? He's saying rather than focus on the temporal things, focus on things that are eternal and undefiled. But when you do that, what happens? Then it matters how we conduct ourselves. It's almost like this is a level of priority for him. So when we learn to focus on the eternal... And like the first commandment is love God first, then we can better love our neighbors. I think he's doing the same thing here. He's saying this is what our priorities should be. So have your priorities set. Is he going to say don't braid your hair, wear gold? I think Peter would say that's not the point. The point is to show through your character, win them over through this fashion. If you get that in order, the rest is secondary. That's how I would make sense of it. Yeah, go ahead. Mm. Like weak. Yeah. Amen. Yep, perhaps. Agreed. It's a great way to put it. Gentle and meek does not mean weak and passive. There's actually a strength to do that, which is the kind of strength that Jesus had to lay down his life. Now, if somebody, sometimes people put this and say, oh, this is teaching women to put up with abusive relationships. That is not the point of this passage. And that's what, in, in some ways in that culture, women had a lot less legal recourse and rights than they would have today. So he's not saying put up with an abusive relationship. That's to take it too far the other direction. If your husband is causing you to sin and harming you, there would be a time to get out for your life. He's making a different point about how to win over a husband. Uh, one more question. Go ahead. I'm reading from the ESV. Yeah. So, yes. Yep. So, if the husband wasn't to be won over, would there still be the submission and the different role for the wife? Now, you never have any passages where wives are told to submit to husbands, but there's multiple husbands are told to submit to wives. Let me make sure I got that right. But there's multiple passages that say wives submit to husbands which makes me think it's broader application here. Now, can you get here just from this passage alone? That's where I'm not sure. It would have to be that he's not talking about unbelieving husbands, but believing husbands who are just not being obedient. If so, 
then it would seem to have a transcultural application. I, I'm a complementarian. I think there are distinct roles for men and distinct roles for women in the church and within the family. And I think Paul lays it out beautifully in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul is making a statement rooted in creation that gives us more context than uh, Peter does here. And he says the same thing. In fact, I think maybe I have it. Let me pull it up really fast. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but just this is important. In 522, it says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Again, wives to husbands, not women submit to men. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now he goes on uh, in ways I, I won't read, but it says, then it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, if women are called to respect and honor and be under the submission, so to speak, of the husband's leadership, the husband is told to not use that as a power play and say, submit woman. That's the complete opposite of what this passage says. This passage is actually saying, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do? He sacrificed himself. He led by service. He led by sacrifice. So I think you could make the case that even if you are a complementarian, the man is possibly being called to the higher task to love sacrificially than the woman is to submit. You could make that case. But nonetheless, I think there is a transcultural distinction that God makes. Now, some people differ with, this, with me, and this is an in-house important theological distinction, but I'm not convinced by egalitarian arguments. So does that help at least quickly? I don't want to get too sidetracked, but uh, hopefully that helps some. Let me pull back uh, to where we were. Get rid of that. Pull this up. Boom. Okay. Now, I saw your hand in the back, and then we'll keep going. Last one. Go. So I think there's probably a couple reasons to this. Number one is when the church began, it was largely led by women. There were a ton. You see this in Acts chapter 17. Each house he goes to, women believe, women believe, women believe. It was a majority women. So statistically speaking, there's likely going to be more women in relationships with a, with a spouse who's either not a believer or not obedient than men would be. I, thi I think that is probably the most reasonable explanation to me. Um, or it could be that in that culture, men did have the authority. It was a patriarchal culture and are far more likely to abuse that and do it in a way that's not right. So women are undergoing this. Now that does raise the question, why wouldn't husbands get as long of a commandment to not do so? In the following section, it does call husbands in one verse where women get six. So I could only speculate why one is longer than the other, but I think my best guess would be that there actually were more women believers in the church then, just like there actually is now. So yeah, good question. We'll stick with that. All right, let's, let's keep going. Uh, verse 7. Likewise, what does this tell us? The thought is continuing, okay? The thought's continuing. Likewise, husbands, so at least the husbands are called out here. Live with your wives, just like it says wives live with your husbands, in an understanding way. As I read it, there's a sense, a sense of saying, see the world through her eyes. Be understanding. Why is that so important? Because in that patriarchal culture, before the feminist movement, all that mattered was the man's view, and the woman in some ways would get in line. So to say to a man, uh, to your wives, it says, live with them in an understanding way is kind of a countercultural thing to say. He says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, let me stop right there. 
that doesn't sound very great and like modern egalitarian language, doesn't it? He just called the woman the weaker vessel. Now, I think, again, commentators differ on this, but I think two things are going on. I think, number one, it's a recognition that physically women are smaller as a whole, right? Obviously, there's exceptions, but men are physically stronger. So you have a responsibility to care for your wife, especially if she's having kids and all the vulnerability and fragility that that brings on as well. But second, men also had more legal authority and power. So a woman was weaker in her legal recourse and rights than a man was. It's not saying, like some people say, oh, it's saying women are weaker emotionally. First off, that's just empirically false for so many reasons. It's not saying they're less valuable. Built within this is that men and women are equal in their value. They may have different roles. One may be physically stronger. That's just a reality of the way God has made the world to be. So I think that's what it's getting at when it says weaker vessel. Since they're, by the way, it says, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life. That's actually powerful, isn't it? We've seen the idea of inheritance and heir show up a lot in this. It's as if Peter is saying, make sure this is not a patriarchal boys club. You are co-heirs of this promise together. Again, we read that, we're like, of course. But in that culture, that was actually a pretty radical thing that Peter is saying, which is why churches were filled with women, with the poor, with masters, with slaves. It was quite an unusual bunch at this time, so to speak. But then this last part gave me pause. I read it a few times. It says, since they're heirs with you, the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, if you're a husband and you don't live in an understanding way, and you don't follow this advice to care for your wife, your prayers may not be answered. That's pretty straightforward. Now, there's a whole talk we could give about why prayers are answered and why prayers are not answered. I think Scripture sometimes says it could be because of sin in our life. It could be because we don't ask with faith, says James. It could be because God has a different plan that we don't understand. But in this case, it says, husbands, if you don't want your prayers to be hindered, care for your wives. Again, it's almost this idea of like fear the Lord. He's judging. So I'm not only telling you to care for your wives, God is watching and God may or may not answer our prayers based upon how we treat our wives. So if that doesn't show a gravity for husbands, even though it's less in length, you know, I'm not sure what would in some fashion. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Finally, now what is he saying? Okay, we've been doing this and this and this. I'm coming to the last point in this uh, train of thinking. All of you have unity of mind. We've seen this in Peter's writings, the importance of having unity. Satan wants to divide. God wants unity. Sympathy means compassion and understanding. One of my favorite verses on this that a number of commentators cite is Romans 12, 15. That says, be happy with those who are happy, be sad with those who are sad. Rejoice with those who rejoice, it be sorrowful with those who are sorry or experience sorrow. So he's saying be sympathetic with one another, show empathy. Again, brotherly love, have we seen that show up a few times in this book? We have. Again, why? Love one another because they will know us by our love. So honor everyone outside but love fellow Christians. This theme keeps coming up. A tender heart, I love that. That's what, back to what you were saying about wives, this meekness. A tender, soft heart. I love that idea. Rather than a hard heart like Pharaoh, there's this tender heart. And then he says, uh, last in this point, and a humble mind. He doesn't say it a lot in this book, but you see how much humility runs through 1 Peter. You've got to have humility to submit to the right authority. You've got to have humility to suffer and not revile when you are reviled. You've got to have a lot of humility when somebody's leading in an unjust fashion 
to be able to still serve them with honorable conduct. So humility is kind of a sub-theme all through this book that, of course, we find in the example of Christ. And then we'll read, read through this. It won't take too, too long in this passage. But uh, verse 10, or actually, I skipped one. Whoa, I skipped a bunch. Verse 9, like I said, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. We've seen that theme again, haven't we? Multiple times. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. And blessing really just in this sense, I think it means the favor of God. We interpret it like, oh, I got a new car. I got a house. I got like, that's not the blessing. It means God's favor because remember, he said it could be God's will that we suffer for doing what is right. That could be a, considered a kind of blessing that we get to suffer and God uses us to draw people to the kingdom that's not a blessing I'm going to ask for, but that's a more biblical understanding than the blessing of a new Tesla. Uh, although I wouldn't mind being blessed with that. Verse 10. <laughs> for whoever desires to love life and see good days. And by the way, this is not bad. You see, there's nothing wrong with loving life and seeing good days. Uh, notice these next two lines. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Do those lines kind of say the same thing? It says his lips, uh, his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. It's kind of the same point, isn't it? When something is repeated but in a different fashion, the writer wants to make sure you don't miss it. It's a poetic device. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And by the way, biblically, we tend to think of peace as the lack of conflict. That's a negative view of peace. Biblically, peace is shalom. It's positive relationships. So the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, those who actively go out and seek to make amends and to have shalom, which is more a kind of flourishing. So we think of peace negative, like remember we talked about freedom, freedom from fear, freedom from addiction. Well, we think of peace as just freedom from conflict, but there's also freedom for living according to our design. There's also peace for, which is flourishing in relationship. That's what Peter means. He's saying seek peace and pursue it. He says it twice, seek peace and pursue it. He says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to the prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. By the way, does God have eyes, ears, and a face? What is this? What do we call this? It's Jesus? No, that is the answer to almost every question in Bible class, except for this one. Um, what, what do we call it? Eyes, ears, and face. Big language. You go to Biola, just say yes, even if you don't. Okay, good. All right. Uh, oh, wait, it just said, don't deceive on your tongue. Shoot. <laughs> Got to take this to heart. What, God doesn't have a face. This is poetic language. So you think about this. Face typically would mean something like, uh, let's look at it. He says, for the eyes of the Lord. In other words, the Lord sees his knowledge, his presence, his awareness. His ears, God hears and is aware. And the face of the Lord the face stands for the person is against those who do evil. So it's not meant to be read in a wooden, literalistic fashion. It's anthropomorphic language telling us about God's character. It's when we take human language and put it on God analogically so we can understand God. And this is a quote from Psalms, so it makes sense we would have that kind of language. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Again, what's the theme of this book? There are people that want to harm you, aren't there? Unjust masters might want to harm you. There might be some husbands that want to harm you. There might be some rulers like Nero who wants to harm you. So when he says, who is there to harm you, if you are zealous for doing what is good, what is Peter saying? Remember when Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but the one who can kill the body and the soul. He's saying, really, the harm they can do to you is not real harm. When we focus on what's imperishable, 
and undefiled? That's a rhetorical question. So by this stage in the book, if you're reading it carefully, you're supposed to say, yes, I'm with Peter. Nobody can actually harm me because I have an eternal perspective. That's the response he's looking for. And it says, but if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Again, there's only one person we're supposed to fear in this book, and who is it? God. Honor the emperor. Honor everyone. Love your neighbor. Fear God. And we're about to read, I am super biased, one of the most important verses in the Bible. This is like the magnum opus for apologists like myself, 1 Peter 3.15. It says in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and with respect. So it starts in their hearts before they offer an answer, setting Christ apart as holy. I often tell people, if you do apologetics with a different motivation to sound smart, win an argument, you're going to do more damage than good. So this starts by saying, set Christ apart as holy. And we should be reminded, be holy because I am holy. And it says, always being prepared to make a defense, or some translations say to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, when he says hope, what's the basis of our hope? In First Peter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for which Peter was an eyewitness. So what Peter says is always be ready with an answer or reason for the hope within. Always in Greek, do you know what it means? It means always. There's nothing fancy to it. And what's interesting about this is Peter is not writing just to pastors. He's not writing to Bible teachers. He's writing to common folk, so to speak, everybody within the church. So being ready for an answer isn't just my job, even though I teach apologetics. It's not just your pastor's job. C.S. Lewis said, we are all apologists. The question is not if we're apologists. The question is just how effective of apologists are we? So I think this, by the way, when it says give a reason or give an answer, in Greek it's the term apologia, which is where we get apologetics, which is the discipline and the sub-branch of theology of giving an answer for the hope within. That's what apologetics is. Now trust me, I could talk about this for a long time. It just pains me to move on, but let me make a couple quick points. One is there's also positive and negative apologetics. You might say defensive and offensive apologetics. So defensive apologetics is when somebody says, how can you believe that God is three in one? Why does God allow evil? How do you explain contradictions in the Bible? Why is God so hidden? Somebody asks a question and we offer a reason for the hope within, that's a kind of defense. There's an offensive, and I don't mean offending people, let me be very clear, although some apologists are very good at that, where you make a positive case. Here's proof for the resurrection. Here's evidence that God exists. Here's proof that Jesus is God in human flesh. And the Bible's true. That is a positive case putting forward. Apologetics involves both. That's what we mean by apologetics. So that's the verse, but what's amazing in it is it's couched in people. This verse is often divorced from its context, so to speak. And it's written to people undergoing suffering. And while they're suffering, they're told to be ready with an answer. All of us are. We'll keep going. I'll stop in a minute and take some questions. It says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Again, you see this theme over and over again. Wives, submit to your husbands with good conduct so you may win them over. All Christians, be ready with an answer and respond with a character of gentleness and a clear conscience so you can put to shame people who defile you. Christians are not supposed to 
win just by our words, although we're called to be read with an answer, we're to win with our character. That theme is all through First Peter. Then he writes again, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. Again, what do we see? This is the second or third time we've seen it, this talk about God's will. That it very well may be God's will for us that we suffer, not just for doing good. Uh, I'm sorry, not just for doing evil, but that we, we would suffer well even when we do good. Questions about this section, clarification just about the nature of apologetics, and then we'll keep moving. Anybody? Anything? Yeah. Yes, so actually, a translation I like better. I, I, I will. Thank you. Good call. So it's about the start of First Peter. I think the best translation says, but set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. In other words, start with the recognition that Christ is Lord and Christ is holy. So my job is to honor Christ primarily. So according to the book of First Peter... I could do that or fail to do that in the words that I speak, uh, hypocrisy. Uh, if I revile back when I'm reviled, I'm not honoring Christ. So my conduct is to be one that imitates the person of Christ and puts him as supreme. So when we don't enter into evangelistic conversations or apologetic discussions with the primary goal of honoring Christ— more often than not, it turns into arguments, person against the other person, unkindness, slander, etc. So does that, does that make sense? Excellent question. Thank you. Other questions just about this section or, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so she asked, I made, I, I made the point, if I understood this correctly, that if we're undergoing persecution that may affect our bodies, our higher calling is to show obedience to the Lord, even if somebody may hurt our bodies. And the answer is yes. Now, that's not saying that the body is insignificant because we are embodied souls. The highest value of the human body is that Jesus, the second person of Trinity, took on a body. <laughs> Incarnation actually is, carne is meat. You ever thought about that in Spanish? It's like God with meat is a really interesting way to think about it. And so it's not downplaying the value of the body. In fact, you could actually argue that uh, allowing yourself to be hurt in the body because of your higher allegiance to the Lord is an act of grace towards the one who's harming you because that's exactly what Jesus did. It changes things when we think about suffering as an act of grace towards that other person, doesn't it? That's one of the most humbling and powerful thoughts in the book of First Peter, that suffering well is a way of shaming people rightly and showing God's grace to them with hopes that they'd be won by our good conduct. It's a pretty powerful thought. All right, one more. We're going to keep going. Uh, I, I think that's some of it. Uh, having studied the deaths and fate of the apostles, there are a number of early Christian thinkers who were won over by seeing Christians suffer and die well. Justin Martyr, who ended up dying as a martyr, 
if I remember correctly, this is into the second, mid to late second century, was won over by seeing Christians suffer. You think about it. I mean, people will hardly walk across the street for what they believe unless there's something in it for them. I don't know what somebody can do to more deeply show their level of conviction than suffer for it. Right? That's putting your you know, money where your mouth is, so to speak. And that's what Jesus did. That's why I've never heard somebody make this point, but I think one of the most powerful points for the deity of Christ is when they're suffering him and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I'm sure it's logically possible a human could make that claim, but I, knowing my weaknesses, there's nothing in me that if I was being tortured would be like, Father, please forgive them. I'd be like, rain down fire. <laughs> Unless, of course, the spirit is humbling and working through us, which is what our prayer would be. So, yeah, remarkably, many people have been drawn to faith, seeing Christians go to the grave suffering well. You see that in modern times. Uh, the author of The Language of God, Francis Collins, who is the head of the NIH under, he might have started under Bush going way back, but anyways, went through Obama and Trump. He actually was in hospice and he saw Christians suffering well. And he was an atheist, didn't believe in God. And a lady just asked him, where are you going to go when you die? And it like rocked him, not that deep of a question, but he saw Christians suffering well. How do you have a peace when you suffer? And that got the attention. One of the great scientists of our day read mere Christianity and, you know, game over. So I think that's the same spirit of what Peter is getting at here. Let's work through the section, verse 18. I think this kind of brings it, brings it together. Actually, this is the most controversial part, and we have eight minutes. For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, again, we've seen this theme twice in 1 Peter, what's called substitutionary atonement, that Christ took our place, took the penalty that we deserved, was in our place, even though we are unrighteous and he's righteous. His actions, of course, on the cross enable us to have salvation. Just like in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins in our place, which is a beautiful, beautiful idea. Now he gets the most controversial part. And I read a bunch of commentaries on this. And the first commentary said, you're not supposed to tell a church that there's various competing views and no consensus on how to read this passage. I was like, great. But you know what? I think we should. I think we should be okay with some ambiguity and not certain what the scripture teaches. Some, one of the, we see a lot of kids deconstructing their faith. I'm writing a book on this. And we tend to think things are black and white. But then when we learn that certain things are gray, we have a hard time with it emotionally and say, well, I just can't know anything and walk away. A lot of young people do this. But think about it. In physics, there are certain things we don't know. Right? There's basic principles in physics we still don't understand. We don't understand why light is a wave and a particle. Like, no one knows how it fits together. So should we be surprised that there's things we don't know and mysteries and difficult passages? No. Part of being a mature Christian is being okay with certain things we just don't know in this life. Doesn't mean we don't wrestle with it. Doesn't mean we don't think about it. Means we do our best and just say, okay, this is one of those passages. This is one of the hardest passages, I think, in the New Testament. And it says this, it says, uh, then he might bring us to God, we're in verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. What on earth? is Peter talking about? Honestly, I don't have a black and white answer for you. I don't know. Now, here's just some of the questions that I'll lay out for you and some of the options. 
part of the question is when he says he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who are the spirits and what is meant by prison? Are they spirits of human beings who have died? Are they unbelievers who have died? Are they Old Testament believers who have died? Are they angels? I mean, one of the hard parts, again, this is a letter from Peter to these churches. So presumably, they got this letter and they're like, oh yeah, I know what Peter's talking about. 2,000 years later, we're like, yeah, I'm not so sure about that one. Different context. So part of the question is, who are the spirits in prison? Another question is, what did Christ preach and when did he preach it? So did Christ preach a second chance for repentance? Did he preach completion of redemptive work, like go down and preach that I've risen from the grave and this is done? Did he preach condemnation to them? When did he preach this? Was this in the days of Noah? Was it between his death and resurrection? Was it after his resurrection? Do you see how difficult these interpretations are? I honestly found myself getting lost in these commentaries going, man, alive. I really don't know exactly what to make sense of this. But it does seem a consensus position is, again, it doesn't mean it's right. It's just as far as I could tell, more people would hold this position, is that there's some time around when Peter is talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, because that's the context here is that Jesus goes down and preaches to those who are dead and condemned his victory, so to speak, and proclaims to them, death is defeated, like he says in the cross. Death has been defeated. So he goes down to those who are perishing and says, it is final, it is finished. Whether that's the spirits who are the demons, whether that's the spirit of unbelievers, He's proclaiming that it is done and his judgment formally has begun and proclaims to them, hey, I've risen, sin is paid for. So the preaching is not one of a call to repentance. And one good reason we have to question that is because there's nowhere else in the scripture that we see anything about a second chance. More often than not, like Hebrews 9, 27, you die once and then face judgment. So I have a hard time believing an ambiguous passage is him going to preach to those who are dead and in judgment, hey, one last chance to repent, come believe in me. That doesn't seem to fit, and you can't base a doctrine on such an ambiguous passage. But if you think about 1 Peter, here's why this interpretation makes more sense to me. He's talking to people undergoing persecution and they feel like the roman empire is going to last forever and they're tempted to focus on the present and peter's reminding them jesus one thing he did after he defeated sin is he went down and he proclaimed to those who were dead that it is finished the price has been paid and proclaims that message to them that's the most reasonable to me, but I'm about 52% sure that that's the, the interpretation there because it's really a difficult passage. Now, there's one more, one more point here that he goes into, and I realize we could debate that for a long time, but then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this. So when he mentions baptism, he says we should think about baptism in light of this example. Uh, now saves you. Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, again, the ascension, and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So all these, this whole section is about these authorities. You have governing authorities who you are subject to. You have husbands at times who are not fair, you are subject to. You have masters who are not subject to you. But he ends this by saying, guess what? Actually, they're all subject to Christ. And he has proclaimed that to them and made it clear. Now, I don't think he's saying baptism is the means of salvation. 
He gives an example of Noah, who was saved through the boat through water, and is making a contrast with that kind of baptism, not saying it's the work that saves you in the way it can read divorced from the theology of 1 Peter. Does that make sense? Let me stop. We got a few minutes for questions. I realize this last section, you probably have more questions than you do answers, but hopefully that just frames this section a little bit for you. Yes? Go ahead. So here's, you might think this is a cop-out, but my answer is, in 1 Peter, he's talking about husbands and wives. That's the context. In 1 Timothy, he's talking about church order, which is a different question in the structure of the church than it is within the structure of the family. So in this context, I'm just very clear because I've heard people say that women are like supposed to be submissive to men and that's just nonsense. It's distinctly and limited to the family in 1 Peter. He doesn't talk about the church like Paul does in 1 Timothy and in other passages. So I think what Paul talks about fits the broader theme that I'm making, that God has given different responsibilities to men within the church and within the family. But even within the church, it's not just women submit to men, it's certain leadership positions and certain kinds of authority. It's still not a broad blanket statement like that. Does that help? It's a great, great question. I know it's such a sensitive topic uh, for many reasons. Other questions? Yes, please. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a common interpretation. That's a very plausible, I don't know percentages, but a number of people, if you didn't, didn't hear this, the idea would be that Abraham's bosom is understood as this waiting place called Sheol in the Old Testament that doesn't make a distinction between heaven and hell, but it's the place of the dead. So when Jesus dies, he goes down and basically proclaims to those who are dead, hey, you've been defeated, your judgment is coming and releases those who are believers either towards heaven or a heavenly state or to be in his presence. Yeah. That, that's super plausible. I was at actually ETSC, Evangelical Theological Society, and someone was making this debate, and like Wayne Grudem was pushing back. I was like, this is interesting. And so this is an ongoing debate, but I think that's a very plausible interpretation of that passage. I think that's super plausible. Thanks for weighing in. Yeah. He did not have to save anybody. Yeah. And he chose to save a boat. 
And I, I always find it interesting, I don't know why it's worded this way, is he, in which a few, that is, eight persons. I don't know why he just doesn't say he saved eight persons. Like, I have no idea why that's there. But the key part, because this is kind of the end of a section, is he says, again, let me just read the end. I think this is a good note, although the last sentence is long. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, at this time he has ascended, is at the right hand of God, meaning he is reigning with God the Father, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. So they can suffer well because Jesus has risen from the grave. And he is sovereign over all, including the emperor. This is a great section to end on about the sovereignty and power and authority of God. And if we really believe that, it is going to shape how we suffer in the present. Amen? Well, we're not going to get through all this book, but chapter 4 keeps going with some even important further stuff that he gets very practical what some of this love looks like. So tomorrow night will be our last chance, but we will get as far as we can through. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start off by asking you if you found 15 minutes to read First Peter and can just give us some insight from what you read. I'm trying to build into you this week a discipline of reading the scriptures regularly. I'm going to give you more hint to this tomorrow night. But I'm going to make a case tomorrow night that you should not read the Bible in a year. Amen. Don't do it. Finally, I got an amen. I was wondering if there were any Baptists here. I'm going to give you, I'm not actually totally opposed it. I mean somewhat provocative, but going to give you tomorrow night a Bible reading plan that when I started doing this has given me so much deeper understanding of the scriptures. We'll get into that tomorrow.